We're going to go to Matthew 6, verse 19. Brett Anderson is going to be our guest speaker today. Albert is on his way south to a senior pastor's conference with Calvary Chapel, so that's why he is not here today. All right, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, if not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Hello, Regen. You're sitting so far back, but I'll let you today. But it's good to be here. It's really good to have my parents visiting from South Africa, the country. They're hiding in that row over there in the yellow and the red. So you can clap for them as we do that. And good for us to experience another July 4th. And Val and I live in East Oakland, and so like we have kind of three levels of firework. It's kind of gunshot, firework, and building implosion, which is the majority of them. We just have loud, crazy bangs going off the whole time, and it really sounds like somebody dropped a lit match into the firework box. How loud were the fireworks, you ask? Well, they were so loud where we were that every time one would go out, it would be like, either that's a firework or another tribute has just died. Seven people have watched Hunger Games. Cool. <laughs> That's always the problem with using other people's jokes. My parents are in town, so I thought I'm normally very casual, but because they're here, I should like dress up a little bit so that they don't think less of me. 
I already have dreads. I spent my last week on a houseboat speaking to youth, and they put me on the houseboat with all the senior girls, and so I ended up with kind of purple nails, henna tattoos, and fortunately my hair was already taken care of because I don't know what would have happened. Normally I do this with my back to the audience so people can't see my tie. Unmaking abilities. Most jokes that we have in life are stolen from other people, right? You hear a good joke, you pass it on. Nobody ever makes up jokes. True story? Or hardly ever. Like, obviously somebody did back in the day. But in my life, I'm 40 years old, I've made up four jokes that I'm very proud of. So every 10 years, I kind of like come up with another one. The first joke is the one that I told the first time I preached. It's my fake testimony about being raised by lions and then God taking away my pride. My second joke is a bilingual joke, and you're not from South Africa, so I can't tell you because you won't understand. My third joke is the one that I'm going to do now, and my fourth joke I made up in the last three years, and it was amazing, and I can't remember it. So I guess technically I only have three, but I know that somewhere in here there's a fourth one that's really good. And then I thought, because it's Sunday, because we've got a bunch of services, you never know who you're going to run into, maybe one tie isn't enough. So I thought, let me wear two ties, because then I'm really, really stylish. And this is a joke that I made up in Matric, which is South Africa, grade 12, which means it's really old and it's really great. And I don't even know if my parents have ever seen the Thai joke, so I thought this would be a great occasion. I was going to save it for my last preach, which is in two weeks' time. And it's also a community involvement joke, so I need you guys to help me. Is that cool? Right, and it's very closely linked to the preach somehow. So how it goes is I'm going to say it was the day of the big race, and you are all together loudly going to say, on your marks, get set, go. You got it? Okay, here we go. Was the day of the big race. And they're off. Don't laugh yet. Two hours, 37 minutes, and four seconds later. Six days, 27 hours, and 13 minutes later. Dun, dun, dun. If you laughed now, that really ages you. There was a pregnant pause. Nine months later. It's a tie. That is horrible, but I made it up, yeah. I think I just ruined my head. So there's another thing that I did, I think the first week that I was here, and I made you say it. I'm going to be bold today and get you all to sing it, because it's really something that you need to get stuck in your heads, because it's pretty cool, and it applies to today's preach. So I'm going to sing a song. We'll all sing it badly, and that's okay, and the rhythm is pretty off, but you can find it from me. It goes like this. It goes, God is bigger than my box. He's bigger than my theology. He's bigger than my understanding. He's bigger than me. Is that simple enough? Except we're going to say it to God. So it's God, you're bigger than my box. And so just catch it up with me as you hear the tune. It goes, God, you're bigger than my box. You're bigger than my theology. You're bigger than my understanding. You're bigger than me, God. You're bigger than my box. You're bigger than my theology. You're bigger than my understanding. You're bigger than me, God. You're bigger than my box. 
You're bigger than my theology. You're bigger than my understanding. You're bigger than me. Yeah, give yourselves a round of applause. I'm just going to take that off because I think that might be distracting as well. Everyone's guessing who's the white sheep and who's the black sheep. But that is kind of the framework. Like whenever I speak on a camp or I spend a bit of time with people, I did it in my first preach here. Like there's two takeaways. And the one is that God loves you more than you'll know. Whether you don't believe in God, whether you do believe in God, if you're far away, if you're really close to him, God loves you more than you know. Like our minds, our brains cannot figure out how big the love of God is. And the Bible is clear on that. And then the second one is this idea that God is bigger than my box, my theology, my understanding. And most importantly, he's bigger than me. Because each of us, we approach God with a box. We approach God with an understanding of how he works, of how he speaks, of what he can do, what he can't do. Um, it's not necessarily a conscious thing. It's something we develop over time. The size of our box might change. The shape of it might change. But we have an understanding of this is how God works. This is the way that God speaks. This is the way that God speaks to me. Some people, God only speaks to me through the Bible, or God might speak to me through an audible voice, or God might speak to me through other people, and God cannot speak to me in tongues, or God cannot speak to me through somebody from another religion, or whatever it is. We all have understandings. They all look completely different, and they're probably kind of evolving and changing as we go. But it's important to kind of be brought back to the thoughts and the idea and the truth that God is bigger. No matter how big your box is, no matter how big your theology is, no matter how big your understanding is, God is so much bigger than that. We can't wrap our minds. We can't understand a God who is able to speak a sentence and a universe appears, whether it appears in an instant over millions of years, whatever. Like sitting outside on the houseboats on Lake Shasta at night and just seeing like thousands and thousands of stars and shooting stars and satellites and planets and all those kind of things. And it's just like... God is big. God is bigger than us. And if the last one, God is bigger than me. No matter how clever I like to think I am, no matter how much I think I can understand God and people and the world and everything, God is bigger than that. And it's really kind of a putting ourselves in a place of humility and really going, okay, God, if you're bigger than me, let me start acting like it. I'm going to preach on a sermon topic that I think people don't like so much because it doesn't get preached about a lot. And I think people are scared of it. And it's really the topic of money, money and things. And I think today's preach is going to be more of a me throwing some stuff out at you, throwing some ideas. I'm not necessarily going to give you all the answers or the pronouncements of what it is. And I know as a congregate, I hate that. I like to know the answer. I just tell me how it ends. Just give me the thing. But I'm going to give you some stuff to wrestle with and to take home and hopefully have deeper conversations with and hopefully engage with in your house group. So it might be a little bit different. It might be a little frustrating for some of us. But I think there's some really good stuff to think about. And I think there's two typical boxes that we tend to cram God into when it comes to money and things, two extreme boxes at least. The one is the prosperity doctrine where there's a sense of a message of God will bless me that runs throughout the entire Bible, but we interpret it as meaning that God will bless me equals God will give me more things and more stuff. And so there's a whole family of people in our family of church and Jesus-loving people that interpret the Bible that way. Prosperity preachers, God is going to bless you and the best way that he's going to do it is if you send me money because that's how it works somehow. And just this idea that the blessing of God means having more stuff. It means being comfortable. It means having a lot of money. So that's the kind of one extreme. And then there's another extreme that I don't think is necessarily as well known or as 
spoken about or has highlighted, which is the idea of kind of a barely scraping it through or scarcity doctrine. And I think it's more of a doctrine that some people kind of inherit or just kind of pervades, the idea of always being in need, never quite having enough. Almost this picture of God that you'll never state out loud, but the idea of God being a father that kind of holds things just out of reach. And so you're always kind of grabbing for it. You're never quite getting it. There's the hint of blessing or the idea that God is good, but in your current lifestyle and situation, it just never seems to get there. The belief is that it will always be hard. You'll never quite make it. You always feel guilty if you have something, and you always feel desperate if you don't have something. And like I say, these are the extremes. So most of us might be somewhere in the middle, possibly tending to one of the extremes. And I would suggest that the truth is somewhere on this line that exists between the two. And as I said, this is a matter that I wrestle with a lot. I wrestle with it personally. I wrestle with it with Val. We wrestle with it in community as we try different things, as we have different conversations, as we experiment and try to figure out how do we love God and serve Him with our money and with our stuff. What is okay to have? What isn't okay to have? And so, as I say, like we're not necessarily going to hit a major conclusion on all these stuff, on all these things, but I do think there's some major principles and stories in the Bible that will help us move towards an understanding. And so we're going to look at some of those today. But first, I mean, I've already made you do something weird, so I figured that would make everything else less weird in comparison. So I want to do this. I want to try an experiment. I'm going to count to three, and then I want us all to just shout out the word money. Okay? One, two, three. Money. Cool. Because we don't talk about it, right? I mean, it's not really a conversation we have with our friends. It's not something that often comes up around the dinner table. It's a private thing. It's my business. My salary is my business. It's not yours. This is something that I keep to myself. And so in the interests of learning and growth this morning, I'm going to pick three random people, and I'm going to ask you to stand up and tell us what you earn. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, and I think all that laughter is the preach right there. Like, that's the message. I mean, like, you're joking, right? Like, I'm not going to stand up in front of a bunch of strangers. I won't even stand up in front of my friends and tell them what I earn. There's something sacred. And we weren't ever taught that. I was never taught not to tell people what I earn. Maybe because I never earned anything. But to be honest, I don't understand why that is. And I think maybe it links to my personal background and my story and the way things have gone. I figure that possibly one of the things is a fear of judgment. If people know what I earn and they know the way that I spend my money, then they're going to judge me. Maybe it's a sense of embarrassment. If people know how little I earn, then that's going to be a thing. Or people are going to realize how much debt I'm in to keep the lifestyle that I have going. So there's a bunch of things, and I'm, I'm not really sure why it is. I imagine, like with a lot of sin, if we could bring money into the light, it would bring a lot of freedom and a lot of hope and a lot of opportunity. If we could share our needs with our friends, if we could be able to talk about abundance, if we could wrestle together with what is a good way to live with what is a good way to use money and stuff. I feel like that would be something helpful. And so instead of making people tell us what they earn, I'm going to try something different. So I'm going to ask Mark to put up a prayer on the screen. And I think it was last year we ran a book study from a book called Free by a guy called Mark Scandrett. And the subtitle of the book was Spending Your Time and Money on What Matters Most. So just the idea of looking at what you're passionate in life, what are the things that really matter, what are your priorities, and then taking a look at your money, taking a look at your time, taking a look at your treasures, at your skills, and just seeing if those things match up. 
And this is kind of a communal thing. So I'm going to read a line, and then I think it's pretty self-explanatory. I'll read a line, and then if you can read a line with me. And I want to invite you to just take time on the line to focus on what you're saying, because I think when things like this happen, it's the whole thing of saying it right, not messing up, don't be out of time with everyone else, and just get through it. But take a moment, look at what we're saying, and there might be a phrase or a line or the whole thing that you don't feel is true at the moment for you. I want to invite you whatever you believe right now, to speak it as a prophetic prayer of where you invite God to take you if it's not true, if these aren't things that are true right now, or an invitation to God to change your heart. So let's do that together. I'll read the first line, you say the second. I know that I'm cared for by an abundant provider. I believe I have enough and that what I need will always be provided. I know that my choices matter for myself, for others, and for future generations. Creator, who made me to seek the greater good of your kingdom. Teach me to be free. Give me my daily bread as I share with those in need. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you for another opportunity for us to get together as family, for us to get together as people that love you and love each other or are just trying to figure you out, just have an interest in trying to hear who you are and try to get to know you. And I just pray that as we focus on a topic that maybe isn't focused on a lot yet, which is a topic that you spoke about a lot, that you will just speak strongly to us the things that you want us to hear, that you will enforce those guiding principles, that you will pull out the right questions, that you will challenge us, that you will encourage us, that you will let us know that you are the provider, that you have us. Help us to leave today strengthened and grown and ready to embrace how we can serve you with our money, with our time, with our things. I just pray that your voice will be strong today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got a lot of passages, more than I normally have today, so if you're trying to flip to them all, it may be fruitless. You are welcome to try. I imagine I've never been kind of a prosperity doctrine person, so I can only kind of imagine what their thinking is, and I don't listen to too much of them, but I imagine that they would quote passages like this. Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, The Lord has said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then this lovely one in 1 Chronicles 4 verse 10. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. So it's easy to take passages like that and kind of see the abundance that is there to see the blessing that it's called for. And I think people would gravitate towards those passages with a focus on lines that say, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Bless me and enlarge my territory. Keep me from harm and pain. But we don't necessarily focus as strongly on other phrases that exist in both of those. The first one is in verse 2 of Genesis 12, you will be a blessing. 
Verse 3, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. With the prayer of Jabez, we love the prayer of Jabez, but we don't quote verse 9. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. So the sense of being more honorable than his brothers, the sense of a response to a life well lived, an individual prayer to God that God answers individually. We don't take the prayer of Job so seriously. We don't make that into a best-selling book because not many people would read that or gravitate towards it. So typically we gravitate towards the reward, but not so much to the work or the commitment or the character that it calls for. And then we've got this passage in Matthew 6 that was read, and we love the end part, and all these things will be given to you as well. I've heard so many people just quote that verse, like, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things. That's where the emphasis comes on. All these things will be added to you as well. And we don't necessarily focus as heavily on the first part. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then... We like the getting. We don't necessarily like the bit where we're seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. We take an idea also in that passage, like, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. And we kind of end up translating it as, do store up for yourselves treasures on earth. I mean, that one seems pretty straightforward to me. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But what did Jesus mean by that? So here's one idea I had about that passage. Maybe Jesus was trying to say, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. <laughs> Let's see if there's a precedent for that. This is one of the most amazing stories, and it's kind of like a little PS to a story we know so well with Moses and the Israelites in the desert, but it is stunning if we take time to focus on this. Exodus 16, 1 to 5, and then a little bit later. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire community to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day... They are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And then from verse 14 to the end. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they gathered it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted much. Two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever it is left, and keep it till morning. 
So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And in case you don't know what an omer is, it's one-tenth of an ephah. I mean, that is just such a powerful passage. I could just come here, read that, and we could go home. But just imagine, like, there's that part, when they gathered it, he who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered as much as he needed. Imagine that's what our world looked like. Imagine that's what our church looked like. This idea that six days they do the work. On the sixth day they collect double, and the seventh day there's nothing. But the sixth day food lasts, whereas none of the other food lasts. Like if you're not sure if God is involved in this process, it seems to be quite specific and quite like miraculous. I studied teaching for four years, and we had this biology teacher who loved to share stories of how the flood was a natural event and how the Red Sea parted because of the wind and all these kind of things. And I mean, this story is a little bit more difficult for him. It's that you've got the same process happening six days, and then suddenly it all gets mixed up. Because any other day you keep it and it gets maggots and stinky, but the sixth day you can keep it, and the seventh day none of it arrives. I would have loved to hear him try to get his mind around that one. But just such a powerful thing. And then this idea that they take the manna and they keep it as a testimony. It's almost as if God thought that that had some kind of principle or important thing that was worth paying attention to for 40 years while it's all happening in the desert. And even after that, it's one of the things that is kept in the ark to remind the Israelites of God's provision for 40 years. This process worked. And when bread wasn't enough, he provided meat as well. And then going back to that Matthew passage, we love all these things will be added unto you. But if you read the whole passage as we did earlier, it's important to note that all these things is relating to three specific things in the passage. What we eat, what we drink, and the clothes we wear. Kind of like our basic necessities. If you seek the kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. Not necessarily a car and a laptop, a new apple, or any of those things. And it's important that we don't grab hold of a verse that we like so much that we ignore the context and make it mean something different because that's what we want it to mean. God is saying, or seems to be saying in that passage, that if you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, that I will take care of your needs, that I will look after you, that I will make sure your needs are provided for. And I want to share some thoughts and invite you to do a 1 Thessalonians 5.21, which talks about testing the spirits, holding on to the goods, getting rid of 
any form of evil as I speak this stuff. So as I speak it, be asking God, like even now, Holy Spirit, just help me hear what's you. If there's anything that's like Brett's crazy idea or notion or whatever, then let go of that. But just test this. And if it's from God, then take it with you and wrestle with it and figure out what it means for us to live with this stuff. And it all foundationizes, if that was a word, on Luke 9, 23, which I like to read in most of my sermons, where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so if our starting point in following Jesus is denying ourselves and making him number one, putting the focus of our lives on him, then it really affects everything else. And I think sometimes as the church, we have a tendency to give certain things to Jesus, but to kind of maintain control of other things things we choose to spend our money on, things we choose to watch, things we choose to read, attitudes towards certain people, unforgiveness towards people that have done certain things to us. And yet, if the starting place is denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, every day living as if I'm dead or I'm walking to my death and Jesus is in control, if that's the starting place, then it really needs to affect everything after that. Matthew 6, 32 and 34 for the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough worries of its own. And I've heard people say, but what about Luke 14, verse 28, which kind of seems to indicate that planning ahead and saving and all these things are a good idea. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying the fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Is that a contradiction? Like that seems to suggest that planning is a good thing, that storing money is a good thing so that we can build the towers we want to build. Again, we look at the context where it's written. Two verses earlier, large crowds traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his mother and father, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Jesus is talking about counting the cost of following him. And he's saying, like, if you're choosing to follow me, it means everything. It means you deny yourself. It means you live as if you're dead. Count that cost. Because if you're not sure and you don't follow through, if you follow me for 20 years and then you find it's too hard and you let go and do something else, people are going to ridicule you. That's going to look insane. So if you're choosing to follow me, count the cost like you would if you made a tower. I don't think that scripture is talking about necessarily good planning and stuff. Luke 19, 1 to 10 is the story that we all know of Jesus and Zacchaeus. And so Zacchaeus is this tax collector. He ends up having tea with Jesus and it just has this effect on Zacchaeus. We don't know whether Jesus said some choice words or if it was just kind of like hanging out with him. But it says, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And I don't know about your maths, but if you're giving half to the poor and then out of the other half, you're giving four times, like maybe he didn't cheat anyone and then it's cool. But there's an understanding that he probably has that giving four times what he cheated is going to be pretty much not common sense thing to do. Luke 21, 1 to 4, as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, 
but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So Jesus is praising the woman who is acting ridiculously, giving up everything. He's not praising the people that are keeping stuff behind in case something happens. And he talks about trust. Luke 9, 1 to 5, Jesus sends out the 12. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Again, Jesus is not necessarily giving the most financially savvy device. And when you look at how Jesus talks about money, a lot of the time, it seems that he's really not giving kind of common sense instruction to people. When it comes to the kingdom in Matthew 13, 45 to 46, this is what Jesus has to say. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This idea that the kingdom of heaven is worth giving everything up for. Everything of monetary value. Like this thing that this guy found was worth so much that the worth of the thing was worth more than everything else that was put aside to make it happen. And then just a couple more scriptures to consider. Luke 3, 10 to 14, John the Baptist. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be Baptists. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Luke 4, 16 to 21. This is Jesus in the temple. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and rolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Luke 6, 20 to 21. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And a little bit later, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will grow hungry. Luke 6, 34 to 35. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. I mean, that's just not even talking about family and friends. That's your enemies. Lend money to your enemies, not expecting to be repaid. These kind of passages, we often want to find a metaphorical reason for them because the literal one doesn't feel so good. Luke 8, 14, in the parable of the sower and the seed, the seed that falls among thorns stands for those who hear the message of God, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. Luke 9, 23, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to inherit the whole world and yet lose or forfeit 
his very self. If you just take some time this week, Google Jesus and money, and you could study it for a month. There's so much stuff that Jesus says about it, which again makes me wonder, like, why do we not talk more about it to try to figure out seemed to be something that was important. The story of Jesus and the rich young ruler, Jesus identifies for that specific guy what is the thing keeping him from the kingdom of God, and it's his money. And he says, like, you're doing great. You've got everything in line. Only one thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And when faced with following Jesus or keeping his stuff, the young man chooses to keep his stuff. Some other examples in the Bible, we've got the example of the Good Samaritan, where the enemy of the person that is hurt not the priests and the religious people that are walking by, but the enemy helps him and takes him to the inn, bandages him, gives him his own expensive oils and perfumes, looks after the wound, and then gives in advance payment for the innkeeper and says, if this isn't enough, I'll pass by again and make sure that it's paid. Paying money in abundance for his enemy. The story of the sheep and the goats, the idea of Jesus and the end times kind of separating people as if they are sheep and goats. And the one group is the group that really looked after people, the hungry and the thirsty and those in prison and those in hospital. And so many of those things, those who are naked, are physical things of just helping people out, of just giving a cup of water or an item of clothing or a little morsel of food or whatever it is. And the people that are faithful to God are identified as the people that did those things at cost to themselves reaching out to the people around them. Is this stuff easy? Is it scary? I don't know about you, like some of this stuff is really scary if we're wrestling with it, if we're trying to figure out what God says, like if it is literally leave everything and just set out, that's a scary thing. If it's trying to understand in our context what leave everything and follow means, then that's also a scary thing. Easier when I was a bachelor, easier when I was on my own and just like the decisions I made related to me and I don't have to worry about anyone else. More difficult when you have a girlfriend, a wife, or I imagine children, an elderly person who is sick and needs special care. Like sometimes in those cases, then a little bit more wrestling needs to happen. Something that's an easy principle when we apply it to our complicated lives sometimes takes a little bit more from us. And I would suggest that this isn't easy stuff but that it is worth wrestling with because Jesus seemed to talk about it a lot. And if a lot of this talk maybe just overwhelms you and you're sitting and going, how do I do this? Where do I even begin? We head back to Luke 9.23, and I said that as a foundation verse. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because once you truly deny yourself, once you truly get to that space, then it becomes all about his kingdom. And so we've taken kind of our life, divided it into three things, like our time, our treasure, our money, and our stuff, and then also our talent. Like once I'm denying myself and following Jesus, those are questions that I need to ask every year, every day, every six months. Just do a life stock take. How am I doing in terms of my time with the kingdom of God? How am I doing in terms of my talent, my skills with the kingdom of God? How am I doing in terms of my treasure, my stuff, my money? We've encountered some amazingly generous people at Regen. Regen itself has been amazingly generous to myself and Valerie. And it's really that thing of just re-looking at those things and going back to those and saying, like, how am I doing in those different areas? I want to close with two stories from the Bible and then one other story. These just excited me. I've wrestled with them for years, but they just make me so excited every time that I read them. And stories of the church in early Acts. Are these things possible exactly the same way today? I don't know. But they were possible back then for some while. Some of the church thought this was a good idea. 
And this is straight after Peter gets up on Pentecost, preaches a message. 3,000 people are added to the church. So we're not talking about a small group necessarily. Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I think one of the things I really like about that, and I've said it before, is that they were just being church. They were just living well with their possessions, with their time, with their talents. They weren't going out on any specific missions or having evangelism camps or anything like that. And as they were doing church well, every day people are being added to their number. People saw something different in the way this community lived. They saw something attractive in a community that looked after each other, in a community that reached out. And it goes further in chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Again, just this extreme sense of generosity and giving that when there was a need, somebody would sell their house, somebody would sell their farm, and you imagine that they would then have to rely on the community if you don't have a house or a farm. And the idea that the community just sticks together, looks after itself, that idea of the manner, the person who collected a lot didn't have too much, the person who collected a little didn't have too little. And then the last story that I want to share, just as a practical idea, on Thursday night, a group of 11 of us went out to a table just past Alameda, and, and we shared a meal together, and we did something that's called a generosity dinner, something that our nonprofit Common Change is using as a tool. But basically, the principle is a bunch of people come together for a meal, and everyone donates an amount towards a common pool. And so we had, I think it was $500 or something. And then after the meal, people shared ideas, people that they knew who had some needs in their life. And we had a couple of needs that were shared. And the idea is that at the end of that time, or maybe in a day or two, as we kind of find out more information and look at how we can meet the needs well, that out of just having a dinner with a bunch of friends, we were able to meet a couple of needs that for the people involved might be significant things. And it's just something that's so small and so simple and the kind of thing that you don't even need an organization to do. You could call up 10 of your friends and say, let's do this. Let's everyone bring 10 bucks, 20 bucks. What can we do with $20 or $200 that can really just bless or encourage or come alongside someone? And what I really like about the idea of the generosity dinner is it's just people getting creative. It's people taking their time and their money and their talents and saying, how can we use this to further the kingdom of God? How can we use this to be an encouragement? How can we use this to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to visit those that are in prison, to walk alongside those who are sick, to come close to the stranger, to see the kingdom of God around us as we live our daily lives? And so I want to close off by doing the prayer of abundance we did at the beginning. And I want to invite you to share this with me, but a community version of the prayer. So it's the same words, but just adapting it to community. Because that is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us, is the gift of the church, that we don't do this by ourselves. 
we do this together as we believe in these things as we try to follow jesus so we wrestle together so we grow together so we experiment we try things that work things that don't work but we slowly see the kingdom of god building up around us again i'll read the first line if you can finish with me we'll close with this we know that we are cared for by an abundant provider We know that we have enough and that what we need will always be provided. We know that our choices matter for ourselves, for others, and for future generations. Teach us to be free. And give us our daily bread as we share ours with the hungry. Let's close in prayer as Jane comes up. Father, I pray that you will help us to live out the words that we sing. Bring us back to the heart of worship where it is all about you. Where each day we wake up and choose again to deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus where we live our lives in such a way that we have enough and we share our abundance with the people around us. We work towards helping those who seem to be living in scarcity to be able to have enough as well. That we speak to those who have an abundance and challenge them and invite them to be part of creating a place where the people are gathering a lot or a little. Everyone has what they need. Help us to trust you. If we really believe that you are who you are, if we really believe the words that we claim, that as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, help us to trust in the promise that all these things will be added unto us. We pray this in your name. Amen.